the Catholic Channel Sirius XM 129 presents Just Love with your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, Executive Director of Catholic Charities of the Archdiocese of New York. Welcome to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. This is our weekly conversation about the church in the world. We speak about those things that are going on that are topical, but we do it through the prism of our Catholic social teaching. Our Catholic social teaching has a number of different values that kind of run through it. And um, we kind of say, well, how's what's going on in the world? How does that deal with um, with that reality? And how do how do we look at things from that perspective? You know, in this time, as we are um, moving, uh, hopefully to a new stage of the, the pandemic, you know, there's a lot that we have to consider in terms of, of revitalizing, looking at things. Um, um, Tom, so how are you feeling about kind of the reopening? What do you, what's on your mind? You know, Monsignor, I, I, I'm, I'm very excited about it. Um, it's been a long time coming and, and I just think that, you know, I mean, walking around, it's, it, it, I'm still in kind of a, a state of, if you will, betwixt and between, like I still will wear my mask under my chin, you know, I'll be walking in the street and, you know, and, and, and I know in the street, you know, that's fine. But sometimes when I go into places, if I go into facilities, if I go into office buildings, if I go into restaurants, I'm not sure. Now, do we wear the mask up? Do we wear the mask down? So it was just very exciting for me to be able to kind of see that, you know, the state is reopening. Um, We now, as I understand it, you know, we'll be able to go back to the movies. Uh, we'll be able to get in and kind of do all those other kind of, you know, things that we, we haven't really been able to do, Monsignor. So I, so I, for one, am, you know, extremely excited about it. You know, I know they had fireworks this week uh, to kind of celebrate it. And I think internally I've had kind of fireworks to celebrate it as well. Great, Tom. Well, that's good. So why don't we go to our first guest? Our first guest is the Reverend Matthew Hyde who is the uh, rector of the Episcopal Church of Heavenly Rest in Manhattan, Fifth Avenue and 90th Street. And um, and I'm delighted that he is joining us, that he's taking the time to do it. Um, and I want to speak with him about the group that he has kind of pulled together to kind of look at uh, various sectors, including the religious community and the opening of the New York. Um, Reverend Matthew Hyde, thank you for joining us on Just Love. My senior is a delight to be here. Thank you for asking me. That is great. So, you know, let's get right into it. I know that, you know, we spoke a couple of weeks ago. So tell us about kind of the, the coalition that you have kind of one of the leadership roles in in pulling together about how we all work together to reopening New York. So maybe you tell our listeners a little bit about that. Sure. It's such an important time for our city. So much has happened through the pandemic. And not only has a health pandemic affected us dramatically, but so many of us are much more aware of inequities that were there long before, uh, economic and racial inequities. And so if the faith community can be part of this next chapter in our city life, I think it's important for us to do so. You know, both obviously within our own communities as, as we open up once more and and take next steps to a post-pandemic world, but also to contribute back to the bigger table that is New York across sector. And, and it's been uh, a real honor to be part, um, you and I, of what Kathy Wild 
from the Partnership of New York has convened to look across sectors in the city, really from every part of the city, but then to engage faith communities as one part of that bigger conversation. So let me let me ask you a little bit about your own congregation. Are you back in person yet? We are. Uh, we started back about a month ago and in person and we um, had done a bit last fall, but it was a little more tentative. And so now we are we are resumed in-person worship and expect to do that um, really forever. And it's a real joy to be back. Yeah, it's, it's an interesting time because I do think, you know, um, all of us, even if, um, even if we're not in school, even if we don't have kids in school, you know, I kind of think the rhythm of a lot of life goes according to kind of school years. From September through June, it may be a little artificial, but so many kids are in school, so many things. So kind of, even if we don't have school, we're now kind of reopening our churches as we kind of maybe would have been on a little bit of a pause or a downturn. How's that feel, Matt? Well, it gives us good time to prepare. Um, We're using this moment, you were thinking about reimagination of the city. We're also thinking about reimagination of our ministries. And we feel like we've learned a lot in this time. We had, we had a website, but before March 2020, we had no online activities at all. And we commenced you know, the beginning of the pandemic to do uh, morning prayer in Compline online every day. And we extended our community well beyond what we had before. And so this moment is about rediscovering the tools of ministry from you know, 2000 years, but also continuing the tools we discovered in the difficult days of the pandemic. And that's been fun. But we're, we're outside more often, actually outside more often than we were able to be before. We never never thought of doing actually um, services and other ministries outdoors in our streets. And now we are. And I think we'll continue to do that both online and outside as well as coming back into our building, which we love so much. You know, from an emotional or a kind of psychological point of view, um, how's the congregation feel about being able to come back together in, in uh, person? That's such an important question. It is such an emotional thing. Um, we, uh, like the, um, your church, are uh, sacramental. And so to be able to receive communion once more, to be able to be together, is such a deeply experience of God. And so every week, when we now have resumed in-person worship, uh, there are people who have come back to church for the very first time since the pandemic began. And that's an amazing moment. And amidst all this happened, amidst you know, a lot of grief and loss and a lot of different kinds of emotions, there is great joy in this, this time of gathering once more. Yeah, it's, uh, it is. I mean, I kind of experienced a little bit of the same thing. Uh, we were you know, completely closed for about three months where, you know, except for private prayer, we kept our doors open for private prayer. And you know, people came in, people came in. Uh, but, you know, probably we were closed from, you know, mid-March until probably about July 4th. And so nobody was there. And then we reopened. It was in the middle of the summer. So, you know, people came back. Um, but I have to tell you what I did not like, even when we reopened, and this is me personally, I just hated the fact that, you know, we had to close off every other pew and we had to have people, you know, it, it just looked to me, I'll use my word, artificial. You know, it was like, it just wasn't the way that people 
you know, should be. And so, um, you know, I, I think we're just about now kind of going to take down all those restrictions and we'll see where we see where we go. Um, so so it is kind of nice to be back and nice to have people, you know, coming back together. And as you said, maybe, um, you know, maybe we come back, but we've also can keep some of that other things that maybe will help us to even reach out even more. So that might be might be a good opportunity. I hope so. We've been talking to people around the world. And one of the people we talked to um, in London actually said, this is our greatest opportunity for evangelism and invitation um, in hundreds of years because everyone's been turned upside down. You know, everyone's looking for a deeper experience of, of we think of God and of, of God's love for us. And so for all of us in our traditions to be able to reach out further, I think makes this moment a special one. Um, even as the people we know and love for a long time return to the to the practices that we've long cherished. We are speaking with the Reverend Matthew Hyde, who is an Episcopal priest and rector of the Church of Heavenly Rest on 90th Street and Fifth Avenue in, in New York City. You know, you mentioned something, and I don't want to redo 100%, but I think maybe sharing some of it with our listeners might be helpful. You just mentioned uh, reopening and, and religion. Um you know, and, and you mentioned Kathy Wilde pulling together various sectors to kind of look at it. Is there maybe a special or unique or a particular role that you see the various religious communities having in this reopening? I think that's a great question. And of course, um, you and I might be a little bit biased, but our answer is yes. Mm-hmm. That um, we think there's a, a special role for faith communities in part because we know the people in our neighborhoods. You know, we know up close at street level, the city of New York in every neighborhood and, and it's great, glorious diversity. And so to be able to contribute that back to folks who are deeply invested in one part of New York, you know, whether it's the cultural sector or restaurants or small businesses or real estate, to contribute a sense of what the whole city looks like from each of our blocks, I think is an important thing. Um, so that every voice, in this next chapter of New York City is included as we try to uh, become better as a city. So I think we do have a special, and I think also the faith community in in all our diversity can articulate a moral role for the human dignity that is the base of all the things, all the logistics and the technical things that we're talking about in terms of reopening and moving forward as a city. What do you? What's the sense you think in your, uh, in you know, in your congregation, optimism, pessimism, mixed? What you know, are people feeling that we're going to come back, we're not going to come back, and how we're going to come back? Are you getting any sense of that? Well, first of all, my senior, you were a native New Yorker, and so you knew New York in a way I don't. I, I, I am in New York a long time now, but I always be a grateful tourist learning about the city. But I think um, as an adopted New Yorker, I think we're always optimistic. You know, that, that New York's great talent is reinventing itself through the ingenuity and, and hard work of its people. And so I think our folks feel confident about that. If we work together, if we step out, if at this moment we're bold, that there's a great next chapter for the city. And 
mean, a lot of our folks have lived through different parts of city life. I mean, so many of us were here on 9-11. Remember what that was like and what it was like afterward. Um, a number of people in our communities, is, as in yours, uh, were here in the 1970s. Uh, it was a different city. And so I think um, part of the joy of New York is to be optimistic and to know that our optimism and hope comes from hard work and uh, more than a little courage. So, so you, you brought it up, you introduced it. So I'm not going to go down that road a little bit. So share with our listeners, how did you wind up? Give us a little bit about your background, how you wound up in New York. Where did you start your journey? Well, I grew up in Charlotte, North Carolina. Uh, but my grandparents had both. So that's why you have an accent, like we New Yorkers don't have an accent. That's right. Uh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Um, and uh, I, I, have, I definitely have an accent. Um, and uh, one reason I feel at home in New York is so many folks are from some other place. And so uh, being able to compare accents is a great part of, mm-hmm. of living in the city. I, I grew up in Charlotte, but by um, my grandparents, my paternal grandparents, had grown up in Jersey City during the Depression. Okay. And I think had looked across the river at New York. And so I grew up hearing that New York was the greatest city in the world. And so, of course, I believe that to be true. Mm-hmm. And it's been a joy to be able to, to be part of this community and to learn about it um, over my time. Well, we're glad you came. We're glad you... How long have you been at, at the Church of Heavenly Rest? Um, eight years. The, okay. the congregation itself is 150 years old. Uh, I've been there eight years. And, and we've got amazing people from, from every background, uh, faithful, talented, uh, adventurous, and I feel lucky to be part of the community. So, so you mentioned the congregation 150 years old. Was its origin at that location? No. Um, yes, uh, great question. So we started in Midtown. Okay. Um, at the place where uh, right now the Fred French building is on East 43rd Street. And then in, we started right after the Civil War. Uh, created, we think, by Civil War veterans who came home to a city that was divided and hurting and began a place of prayer. And that's why our name is our name. We want to be a place of peace and reconciliation, a place of heavenly rest in a tumultuous city. And in the 20s, as the city moved uptown, we moved uptown too. And uh, Andrew Carnegie's widow uh, sold us land at uh, 90th and 5th. And so we've been part of this neighborhood in Carnegie Hill for more than 90 years. And uh, now with folks in the pandemic from all over who are joining us, and we're grateful for it. So, you know, it's interesting you mentioned that. And the reason I asked that is because, you know, more or less around that time in the late 19th century, um, the Cathedral of St. Patrick's was, was built. Yes. And when it was built, it was thought to be pretty foolish where it was located because it was being built kind of in, in the rural area. Who was ever going to come there? And so where the Church of Heavenly Rest began, you know, maybe around that time, a little bit earlier, not too far away, I bet you it wasn't very developed at that time. Um, I think that's right, that one of the things that faith communities can contribute, historic faith communities in New York can contribute at this moment, is this collective memory of being adventurous and being um, at the frontiers of the city as it developed. And so the question for us now is, when, you know, now the city is, uh, in terms of, of real estate development, fully developed, but has other dimensions it can develop in right now. So how are we being pioneers and living at the frontiers of where the city's going right now and being adventurous in our faith and in our values? 
So again, I think you mentioned something about New York reinventing itself. I mean, right. you know, some European cities kind of really um, probably look down a little bit upon us because they say you knock down all your old buildings and you build new ones. Um, and I know my experience recently in just getting around town in the past few months, um, boy, there's a lot of construction going on around this town. So even through the pandemic, a lot of building was continued to go on. So we are continuing, as you said, to reinvent ourselves. And um, so speak a little bit about you know, some of the issues that have raised up about kind of the divisiveness and, and some of it shows up in political campaigns, in slogans. Um, how is your congregation kind of feeling some of those tensions? Well, first, I want to say thank you, Monsignor, to you for raising, when we've been together, the question of dialogue and be able to hear each other and uh, to see each other in different points of view. Um, that's something I think faith communities maybe could do better, but should do well. And I mean, for us, it all starts with um, our queer shared faith that we're all made in the image of God. And that human dignity is uh, a sacred gift to everybody, regardless of our points of view or our backgrounds. And so how do we live that in our faith? And so when we start there, that provides us with a good foundation to uh, to work from and to be in dialogue together. Um, our folks in our community have every conceivable point of view in terms of how they see the world and in terms of how they've experienced the pandemic. And so part of what we're doing this summer as a community is listening to each other. Um, we worked with an Irish poet over the last year from Ireland, uh, amazingly in the pandemic. That's where a lot of the Irish poets come from, right? <laughs> <laughs> That's right. As it turns out, it's a surprising thing <laughs> here. But, uh, but uh, well, we thought he would be with us in New York, and it turned out he was uh, he was in Ireland the whole time. But he said that listening is a sacrament. You know, this outward, invisible expression of God's grace, and mm -hmm. we're spending the summer listening to one another and trying as, as a as a congregation to build a shared understanding of our future together. Mm -hmm. I think that's our opportunity in New York, and maybe nationally too, is to contribute back a sense of dialogue based on respect and on a common appreciation of dignity. And so we're to, the, I think the civic, you said this, the civic dialogue has completely broken down. So what can we contribute as, as people of faith to this wider conversation that's constructive and hopeful, I hope. So let's go back to your first thing. What is your, what you kind of hope for something you're going to be able to do with your congregation in kind of that you learn through Zoom, online, social media, what's, what's your biggest hope that you're going to be able to either continue or expand in that area? Well, we, we have a couple of hopes. Um, I mean, first, you know, for us to be able to gather in person once more, to, to be, we are a community, Christian community of deep belonging and welcome. And so how do we do that again? in this new post-pandemic world where, you know, we don't have to separate uh, to keep safe anymore. Secondly, this online community has been a revelation to us. And, you know, we, we were late to this game, but a revelation to us that now we can invite anybody anywhere to be part of our programs. 
And that's been a lot of fun to learn about in this moment and that we can welcome people from anywhere to be part of our community. Uh, we now are doing more small group ministry and we have folks from all over the country providing their gifts to lead our small groups. And that's a, that's a wonderful surprise for us. We think the Holy Spirit surprises us all the time. And this has been a big surprise. And then, you know, we are in a neighborhood and a congregation that's been traditionally white. And our city is such glorious diversity. We are looking at how we can be part of the community uh, within our congregation, within the wider Episcopal Church in the city for uh, greater diversity and racial healing at a time when I think our, our city and our country are crying out for that. And then finally, our hope is for New York and that we can be part of, and hope you and I can be part of together uh, right. serving the city at this point. Hey, thank you for, for sharing with us. I really appreciate it. Could I ask you, we have listeners throughout the country. Could I ask you, um, as, as I kind of say goodbye to you, could you kind of provide a little prayer or a blessing to our listeners throughout the country? So our prayer is that we may see the goodness of God in the land of the living, as the psalm says, at this moment, that we may together uh, experience the fullness of God in our lives, in our communities, in our cities, wherever we are, that we believe the Holy Spirit guides us in this new moment. Thank you, Reverend Matthew Hyde, Episcopal priest, rector of the Church of Heavenly Rest in New York City. Thanks for sharing with us some very, very valuable insights as we reopen. Thanks for being with us on Just Love. Thanks for inviting me, Monsignor. Look forward to talking again. Great. Um, so, Tom, um, you know, I think we'll take, a, take a, a little break and then we will come back. You know, we say just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.
Just do it. Just love. Just check out Monsignor Kevin Sullivan, who's here right now. Take it away, Monsignor. Just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself, and our world will be more just, and it will be more compassionate. You know, we talk about big things. We're talking about reopening after COVID. We're going to talk a little bit in a little while about some items in the in the Mideast. Uh, those are big issues. But one of the things why we say just love from um, our perspective is because we can do that. Each of us can do that. We can love one another. We can love ourselves. We can love God. And if we all do that, our world would be much better. It would be much more compassionate. So um, so that's why we say we talk about big issues, but we can also do things individually to make our, um, our, our world a better place. Tom, why don't we talk a little bit about some of the news notes that, uh, that we have. So l- listen, I, you know, I know this TikTok thing is all over the place. I don't have the slightest idea what it is. So, um, uh, we, so, so tell us a little bit about TikTok. What's that about? Well, you know, TikTok, I know it from my, honestly, my niece and her friends. Um, They're these little tiny videos that the kids make. They're about 30 seconds long and they, um, and, you know, and they kind of share them among their friends and stuff. Um, But there had been some controversy about them because, you know, they originally, the software had come from China about TikTok. And so I think there had been some concern with TikTok that if you signed up with TikTok, the, you know, let's say, you know, people, you know, in China, we'd be the Chinese government or whatever, we get some of your information. So uh, President Trump actually had issued some executive orders at the time that sought to ban transactions with TikTok. Now, as it turns out, um, oh, I just think I think he banned them because he wasn't a good dancer. That could, I mean, that could be Monsignor. That could definitely be, but they're very popular. So people didn't really like that ban. So it turns out that this week, President Biden signed an executive order that sets the criteria for government to evaluate the risk of applications connected with foreign adversaries. And revoking the and replacing those three executive orders that President Trump had put out regarding them, regarding the ban on TikTok and also another app called WeChat. Biden's new order will direct the Commerce Department to review the apps tied to foreign adversaries and will lay out what it should consider an unacceptable risk. It also directs the Commerce Department to work with other agencies to develop recommendations for U.S. consumer data from foreign uh, adversaries. So TikTok, though, aren't you supposed to dance your video or something like that? Uh, well, yeah, there's a lot of dancing that goes on on TikTok, which is why I think kids like it. And there's a lot of singing and music. It's kind of a it's kind of a fun app. But, you know, because it's so short, you really can't get a lot of information. It's sort of like a Twitter. It's like Twitter with words or Twitter, Twitter with video. So okay. you really can't get a lot of information. out. So that's why I think the kids like it. OK. All right. So why don't we go to our second guest right now? Our second guest is Sean Carroll 
who is the president and CEO of American Near East Refugee Aid, uh, which is an international relief organization that provides uh, a lot of humanitarian assistance and some development activity um, to deal with refugees in um, Palestine, Lebanon, Jordan. Um, uh, Sean Carroll, thank you so much for being with us on Just Love. It's great to be with you. Thank you so much. Uh, so um, obviously, um, tra- tragically, um, the land that we're going to be talking about, the Near East, has experienced once more some very, very uh, you know, troubling violence and deaths and war that is there. Um, so let me ask you this question, a little bit of your background. Tell our listeners a little bit, how, how did you wind up getting involved in working to help refugees? Thanks. I, I, I've worked in international development for a little over 30 years. I lived in Jerusalem once uh, when there were somewhat more hopeful times, or at least we thought so at the time, uh, shortly after the Oslo II Accords in the late 90s, 96 to 98. My kids happened to be born in Jerusalem. Um, and I, I've, I've, I've worked around the world. I'm not a Middle East expert, um, but I did have experience there. And when Anira, the American Near East Refugee Aid Organization, uh, came calling and asked if I'd be interested in, in uh, leading the organization, I jumped at the chance. And it's a, a wonderful organization doing, doing good work. And unfortunately, a lot of our work these days is in humanitarian relief and assistance, and we want to do as much human development as we can. So we try to make sure that all of our humanitarian work has a development focus as well. So we're looking at long-term human development. Uh, But I've been working in international development for a little over 30 years. So with regard to the situation now in the the areas that that you work in, um, give our listeners a little bit of sense of, you know, we read the newspaper, we look at social media. What's your and your people's kind of understanding of the situation now, what's going on there? Well, you know, there was a ceasefire after 11 days of, of bombing. There was a ceasefire on May 21st, and we thought that would last a while. And if people are following the news, they saw that Israel bombed Gaza again today in response to incendiary balloons um, sent over the Gaza border into Israel, which in turn was in response to the provocative and racist march in, in, uh, in East Jerusalem um, on Flag Day. So the tit for tat continues. Unfortunately, the tat is larger than the tit, and uh, it's, um, it's devastating. It's devastating for people trying to lead a normal life in the Gaza Strip, which is impossible because even when there aren't bombings, it's a, it's been described often and, and correctly as an open air prison. There's no freedom of movement uh, of people and uh, often goods and fishing rights and uh, access to the outside world is cut off. There's been a siege there for the past 14 years. Uh, Israel and Egypt have a blockade on Gaza. So a normal life is impossible. Uh, when there are bombings, obviously it's tragedy on top of 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 impossible uh, striving for normality. 
So I know every, I'm sure almost everybody um, has heard the word Gaza and knows it's a troubled place. Give our listeners just a little sense of how big is Gaza? Is it, you know, is there a comparable and is it the size of New Jersey? Is it the size of Rhode Island? How big is it? It's about twice the size of the District of Columbia with about three times the population. So if it were its own country uh, on its own, um, and of course, Palestinians don't want Gaza to be its own country on its own. They want uh, Gaza and the West Bank unified into a Palestinian state. But if Gaza were a country on its own, it would be the fourth or fifth most densely populated country in the world. Uh, And there are some parts of Gaza Strip that are more densely populated than anywhere. Some of the refugee camps, the beach camp on the, on the edge of Gaza City, um, horribly densely populated uh, residents living in, in squalid conditions. But, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a land and a people striving for normality, as I said. It's two million people. There is some room for agriculture, and NERA supports smallholder. There's not room for large agriculture, but there's room for some. We support smallholder farms and uh, hydroponic gardens on rooftops, um, trying to support in any way possible some hope of economic development, sustainable development for families and communities. So I I know over the years, obviously, with all the wars back and forth, so kind of uh, geographic or politically, or is it part of any other country now? Well, it's, it's part of the occupied Palestinian territories, uh, and, and Israel officially left the Gaza Strip uh, some years back, 2004. Uh, but given that the Strip is blockaded, uh, besieged by Israel and Egypt, as I said, really the op- occupation hasn't gone away, uh, and the West Bank is uh, occupied by Israel. So it's, the, it's officially known as the occupied Palestinian territories. Some people say West Bank, Gaza. Some people say Palestine. Uh, If you're talking about Palestine and the hopes for a Palestinian state, it would be West Bank and Gaza. And of course, the whole land at one point was known as Palestine. So so, um, your organization um, is, is involved in dealing with a lot of refugees. And again, I know some of this is pretty basic for you, but make me a little bit smarter and make our listeners a little bit smarter. Um, There's a whole United Nations section or something that deals specifically with kind of Palestinian or or refugees in that part of the world. Can you describe for us, you know, what is, I mean, I think we have the idea of huge refugee camps and things like that. Can you give us a little bit of a picture of the refugee situation in that part of the world? Absolutely. Well, the camps are large uh, and they become, uh, everyone hopes they're not permanent, but it's been more than 70 years. And so many of the camps are inside cities or on the outskirts of cities. And sometimes the lines between the camp and the rest of the city are blurred. Uh, Once you've once you've been enough times and, and had the situation explained, it becomes easier to differentiate. The camps are usually have uh, more densely populated uh, housing. Uh, the streets are narrow. 
Um, some of the camps, particularly outside, I'm, I'm talking to you from Beirut right now, and the Palestinian camps in Beirut are, are probably worse than those in the West Bank and Gaza. Um, but in, in many respects, there's not a huge differentiation between those who were displaced from the 1948 war, the Nakba, the catastrophe, as the Palestinians call it, or the 1967 war. Uh, those uh, internally displaced refugee Palestinians live side by side, those who are, who are living in the towns they, they, they grew up in, in, in Ramallah and in Gaza City and in Khan Yunis, Gaza, uh, in Hebron and Nablus. Uh, but within and around those cities are refugee camps of Palestinians who were forcibly displaced from Jaffa, from Haifa, uh, from West Jerusalem, from villages around uh, current day Israel, around the airport in between Tel Aviv and Jerusalem, et cetera. I, I mean, so in fact, they're also part of the refugee continuum who are not living in camps. They're just kind of living in other places. Is that, is that true? That's right. I mean, most of the most of the refugees are living in in refugee camps. Some have 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 gotten out of the camps. Um, uh, some you might are you were referring to the UN agency that specifically mandated with assistance to Palestinian refugees, UNRWA, the UN Relief and Welfare Agency. Um, they do good work. Their schools are good. Their health clinics are good. Um, sometimes you hear of of uh, people. Uh, saying that uh, some of the services they get are better than, uh, than others. I think that's, that's debatable. And, and anyone living under occupation is, is, uh, uh, is suffering. Um, and as I say, sometimes the line between the, the refugees and the non-refugees is, is thin. Um, so speak to us a little bit about what your organization is, is doing. And I know as with, you know, most uh, international um, assistance organizations, all of the reputable ones try to provide immediate assistance, but they're also very much want to do with development, sustainable stuff, so that they can help empower the people they're helping. So tell us a little bit about some of the programs that uh, your organization has been engaged in. Absolutely happy to do. And I'll give you a concrete example of how we try to ensure that even if we're doing humanitarian assistance, emergency relief, we're looking at development. So right now, in the wake of the escalation and the bombings in in Gaza, we've been delivering hot meals to 3000 Palestinians in Gaza a day. And we're working with a local partner organization, the, the, the CSSL, which is a women's cooperative, the cooperative for for uh, savings and cooperative society for savings and lending Mm -hmm. women's cooperative, about 70 women. And we've worked with them over the years, uh, um, provided vocational training in a variety of, of, of vocations, embroidery, sewing, uh, photography and videography and, and cooking and catering. And we also do work in schools. We do early childhood development where we build new or we, we repair old, School rooms for to make them into kindergartens. We work on on uh, teacher training, parental involvement, um, ensuring age appropriate toys and and books. Uh, do playgrounds, do solar. And I was in one of these schools, and we Anira 
had put a kitchen in the back of the school to help the women's cooperative uh, do cooking. And they were making a meal and I asked them who they were making the meal for. And that day it was for the harvest, the olive harvest pickers. The foreman had contracted them to provide food to the olive pickers. And I asked if they ever gave food to the kids because this was in a poor section of Gaza City and the kids were glad to be in school, but some of them looked hungry. And they said, we do, if there's some food left over, we sell it to the kids who have money. And the immediate thought of anyone in development is, let's see how we can figure this out so the kids who are needing uh, in need can get a meal. And that, as you know, uh, helps bring kids to school if there's a hot meal there. So we thought about how to do the integration. We worked with the farmers and the, the greenhouses that we were supporting. We worked with the women's cooperative. We started providing meals for the school, an integrated feeding program, bringing together various pieces of our program. So when people were displaced by the bombings last month, we activated that women's cooperative and they started making 3000 meals a day to deliver to people whose homes were damaged or destroyed. And so that's emergency relief, but we're working with an organization in a human development way. I think that's a, that is a, just a very, very um, you know, good example. And, you know, I, I think, and if you, since you know, kind of you've been around different parts of the world, I think sometimes we get a little bit discouraged or a little bit down saying, oh, boy, you know, there's more bombings, there's more, uh, is this ever going to end? And there just seems to be so much, you know, poverty. But I mean, my, little bit my understanding is that, you know, in, in various parts of the world, let's just take Africa for a moment. There, the organizations, um, you know, the development organizations, the aid organizations, um, there's been some real growth and real development in tackling some of those uh, problems that almost seemed intractable, whether it is uh, arable land, whether it is potable water, some uh, sustainable farming. Am I, am I right in that? Oh, you are absolutely, Monsignor. It's a, they're, the, the, we all share, humanity all shares the same aspirations, the, hope, the same hopes for a safe, decent life where our kids go to a get, good school and we have a, a, a good, stable job that provides for the family and that we play a, a constructive and productive role in our society. And that's true everywhere. And the potential and the talent is there. And sometimes it's a question of offering some opportunity or trying to break down some barriers that get in the way of people just trying to have a normal life or even a successful um, life. So absolutely. And I always, I, I'm always hopeful. It's a, it's a mixed story. If you, I was in Gaza last week and uh, of course we saw buildings that were bombed, some of them destroyed and completely brought down to the ground. And you wonder how people can go on, but they already were going on. I was like, we were working with the women's cooperative and uh, we had installed six reverse osmosis water filtration systems to provide uh, filtered water because the groundwater is, is very salinated. Um, so the development work goes on. People try to get on with their, with their life and, uh, uh, so it's all, it's not all doom and gloom and, and impossibility. It's, there's lots of possibility. And with, if some of the barriers could be removed, if there could be a little bit more free flow of, of, of people and goods, 
if Gazan farmers could sell their produce again to Israel and to the region as they once did, uh, if there's more, there can be more remote jobs doing IT coding around the world, and we're working on that as well. So you're absolutely right that there, there is progress, there is hope overall around the world, there, the human uh, indicators, human development indicator, indicators are on the rise, but it, it's, it's tough right now in the Palestinian communities. Um, and go so, ahead. So Sean, what we, what we sometimes like to do with people who are knowledgeable like yourself is before, we, before you leave, um, give you a chance to say two or three things that if you kind of were made in charge of the world, what would be the two or three things you'd like to see changed to help the situation of the Palestinian refugees? Well, the, the occupation needs to end. That's not our job. We're not, right. we do human, we do human development. We're not, uh, we're not a political organization. We, we don't work on the peace process. Um, right. You know, throughout history, um, an occupation can't last forever and people need to have uh, some freedom. I, you know, I would hope to see elections on the Palestinian side as, as well. So I think governments and leaders have plenty of work they can do on, on both sides. But what, what I'd like to see is a recognition that uh, the vast majority of people, people who don't know much about Gaza, think it's a... a, a, a a haven of, of, of terrorists. And the reality is that uh, by and large, far and away, it's people trying to lead a normal life and want nothing more than uh, the occupation to end, the warfare to end, um, and live in, in peace and stability. I would ask that people look at um, holistic ways to increase human development. We should be recognizing that the climate change catastrophe also offers an opportunity. If we if we look at green development, we've vowed we don't build anything now, a school or a health clinic without putting alternative energy on it, solar panels on the rooftop, hydroponic gardens. Um, if we look at, as I did when I saw that schoolhouse and realized that we could have not just a, a kindergarten program, but a farming and a women's cooperative economic development and kindergarten program and bring it all together and, and help provide a sustainable way for people to move forward, uh, have a bit more prosperity and a bit more hope for the future. But mostly I would ask people to, to, to listen and to learn and to get to know. Everyone always knows the stories, whatever society you're talking about, if people are critical of the US government, for instance, they often say, I love the American people. The, the Americans I've met are wonderful. And we all do the same thing when we meet the people um, we recognize that we're all in this together. We're all humans. And, uh, and because of the blockade on Gaza and because of the, the restrictions on movement, not many people get to meet Palestinians these days. And Palestinians aren't meeting Israelis either. And so there's, uh, there's little hope for uh, coexistence and for humanity. And so a lot of the inhumanity is what we see uh, playing out. We see it in the news and we see it in the streets. And uh, the inhumanity that's playing out between uh, Israelis and Palestinians doesn't move anyone forward. And so you, I would ask that people get to know Palestinians, find out what their hopes and dreams are. And if you're interested in supporting those hopes and dreams, look to an organization like ANERA who can, who can help do it. 
Sean Carroll, the president and CEO of American Near East Refugee Aid. Thank you for taking the time to be with us on Just Love, and thanks for sharing your, your insights. And even more importantly, thanks for your leadership and good work with Anira in dealing with some very, very kind of difficult situations. So thanks well, thank for being with us on Just Love. Thank you for having me, and thanks for doing this. Very much right. appreciate it. Tom, we'll take a break. Just love. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. And just love yourself and our world will be more just and more compassionate. We'll be back in just a moment on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. Let's get back to Just Love and your host, Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Welcome back to Just Love. I'm Monsignor Kevin Sullivan. Just do it. Just love God. Just love your neighbor. Just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more compassionate. Tom, what do we got to do? What do we what what else is new that you want to share with our listeners? Well, you know, Monsignor, uh, this week, um, uh, the USAID, which, of course, we just talked about development with uh, with uh, Sean Carroll uh, in 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 uh, 
in the Palestinian territories. USAID funds development all over the world. So USAID just announced that they will grant $115 million in cooperative aid to El Salvador to slow migration from the Central American country. Uh, Samantha Powers, administrator of the U.S. Uh, Agency for International Development, said this on uh, this past Monday, June 14th. And she said, we can work with local partners in Central America to expand opportunities for youth to help them get away from violence. Uh, she, uh, she also uh, said the aid that will include $50 million in security, $35 million for programs to counter violence against women, and $30 million in job training. And it was also announced that USAID will contribute $12 million for small and medium-sized businesses in uh, an uh, area in the Northern Triangle, Guatemala, and Honduras and El Salvador as well, that were affected by coronavirus-related lockdowns. You know, it's very interesting. I mean, as, Tom, as you know, I, I, I traveled down there and, you know, actually, we're going to have a little report, which is going to be very compatible with what's coming, coming out. But, um, you know, the way they're divvying up that aid in El Salvador, uh, really, in my judgment, without saying it's, it's the pious foot exactly the right way, you know, I uh, I like what I'm reading there because um, the issues of security and the issues of violence against women um, were critical, critical issues. And so, you know, I think some people might say, you might say, hey, wait a minute, we're, we're using my words, oh, we're throwing $50 million for the police, we're throwing... Um, $50 million for law enforcement. Well, okay, maybe, and said, shouldn't we do, shouldn't we do more for job training and things like that? But I can tell you from having been there, if you don't do something about the security, you can't do the other stuff. So it's, you know, maybe we're not particularly, you know, we wish we didn't, but if you don't do that, you can't do some of the other stuff. So it's a, one of those necessary things that has to be, you know, has to be done. And uh, so anyway, that's good. I'm, I am really, really glad that, um, that that is, um, that that's, that, that is happening. Um, there one more item you want to share? Sure, Senior. Uh, well, in, in, a, in a similar way, um, it was also announced this week um, that the Biden administration is going to expand the number of Central American children that are eligible for asylum in the United States. Again, on Tuesday, it was stated that uh, the administration will expand the number of Central American children eligible to apply for asylum in the U.S. Uh, while still in their home countries. Um, the program was known as the Central American Minors Program, and it began in 2014 during the Obama administration to allow children whose parents were legally in the United States to apply for admission, but it was halted by the Trump administration. The Biden administration has previously been accepting applications only from children with cases that were pending when the program closed, but the program will now expand the eligibility limits to consider children whose parents have asylum cases pending in the United States. Uh, the new eligibility requirements will greatly expand under, the, under this new program. Yeah, again, from our perspective, very, very good. You know, unfortunately, in this environment, anytime you do something like that, people say, oh, now you're completely opening the borders. No, no, no. That's not what's going on. What's basically saying is, if you have a parent here, can we reunite their kids there? It's, so it's not opening the door to everybody. It's taking a targeted group. 
And it certainly comports with our definition of, of a priority on family reunification. So we're very, very happy for that. Obviously, you know, the numbers you can, uh, you can argue about, et cetera, et cetera. But so those are things which are really, um, uh, in, from our perspective, very positive. And they're also very positive for the United States because they kind of build a more vibrant um, society in which you have families together. So anyway, so um, so what we say is just love, just love God, just love your neighbor, just love yourself. And our world will be more just and it will be more uh, compassionate. So thank you for being with us on Just Love and join us again. Tom, thank you for getting the guests that we did today. Yolanda, thank you for enabling us to be heard and to kind of be on the air. So join us again next week on the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129. You're listening to the Catholic Channel, Sirius XM 129.